This is Julian Morrow with you and it's wine time now on RN, whatever time you happen to be listening, because we're joined by the author of the new book, Vintage Crime, A Short History of Wine Fraud. Rebecca Gibb tells us that wine fraud is as old as wine itself in the course of charting some of the most shady moments and shady people in the history of wine. But Rebecca herself is a totally legit wine expert. In fact, she's officially a master of wine. Rebecca Gibb, welcome to RN. Thank you for having me. Just quickly, what is a master of wine? It's the wine trade's most uh, most prestigious wine qualification with lots and lots of examples that are incredibly difficult and about yeah there are, there are just over 400 of us in the world so yeah it's it's kind of seen as the Everest of the wine world I guess well congratulations on being a master of wine and I suppose it's the that, that climbing that Everest that really got you to this book in some ways I've heard of champagne socialism Rebecca but I've never heard of champagne riots so let's start with the champagne riots what they've got to do with wine fraud and also how they sort of led to this book Crikey, yeah, so, um, so so basically champagne is seen as a luxury product, right? Um, yet that was certainly not the case just over a century ago. Mm. Uh, lots of, at, the, at the time, growing grapes was really, really arduous and they weren't getting paid what they were, what the grapes were worth. And that's because people were trucking in wine from the south of France, from the Loire Valley. They were bringing it into their cellars in the Champagne region and it was coming out like, it was made fizzy in the in the cellars and it was coming out being labelled as champagne, mm. which was depressing the prices that the grape growers could get at the time as well. Like lots of the grape harvests were failing and they just got over what was known as um, phylloxera, which is a vine aphid that had basically eaten its way through the vineyards of Europe and they'd had to replant. So they had all those costs and debts they had to pay. Basically, they were starving and... Um, they were saying, hey, we think the fraudsters, the people who are making champagne um, out of grapes and wine from other places, are to blame for this. So, yeah, they took to the streets and, you know, burnt a few champagne houses down, poured wine down the streets, that sort of thing. Wow, amazing. And so you hadn't heard of the champagne riots and then got sort of quite interested in them and that sort of led you on the the wine fraud track. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I definitely wasn't done with wine fraud once I'd, you know, once I was done with the champagne riots and my master of wine dissertation, I was like, there's more to this than meets the eye. So yeah, I, I've just, I've sort of, I did a degree in history and so I just thought, you know what, I'm going to explore that a bit more and, and lo and behold, there are many wine frauds to write about. Indeed there are. And I suppose we should <laughs> probably step back one step, Rebecca, and ask the, the basic question, what is wine and what makes it authentic? Ah, that is a bit of a slippery subject. So, yeah, what is authentic wine? It really depends on who you are, um, sort of in the in the sort of the wine chain as it is. Whether you're a producer, whether you're a, a vendor of the wine, whether you're a drinker, and how involved you are with the product as well. You know, what what is an authentic wine to you? Is it just a wine that comes in a bottle? Is it a wine that's only been made with, you know, no additives? What is it to you? It's there is really no definition. It really depends on who you are, I suppose. But ultimately, wine is produced, obviously, for its intoxication value and purpose. But obviously, wine is, we drink wine because it's a nice thing to do. It gives us pleasure. Mm. And, you know, if a wine gives you, if you drink a bottle of wine tonight or you had a bottle of wine last night and it gave you a lot of pleasure, um, does it matter whether it's 
authentic yes. or not. And yeah, these, yeah. these are sort of the questions that were, were thrown, that came up whilst writing the book. It, it is a fascinating question, but I suppose uh, one of the th- many things you learn from the book is that there was an, an attempt back in that period before the Champagne rights to, to, to define what wine is, fermentation of fresh grapes or fresh grape juice. And I wonder mm. if you could tell us a little bit about the sort of process that that led, led off. I think it was called the Griff Law back in 1889 and how that led Ooh, to the system. Oh, yes, indeed. And, and how that led <laughs> to the system of appellation and terroir. Right, okay, in 30 seconds, I'm going to do my best. So, yeah, basically, it's very difficult to legislate, again, and say, you know, you're committing wine fraud if you don't have a definition of wine. So they came out with this definition of wine in the late 19th century, which was the Griff Law in France. And so, you know, it has to be made from grapes, fresh grapes, as opposed to, you know, dried grapes, which they were doing a lot of at that time. They were making grapes about basically out of raisins when there was a bit of a shortage. Mm. And this all leads on, so you've got a definition of wine, but then it's people start wanting to put boundaries around their particular places because people were making, you know, you might have heard of Chateauneuf de Pape, for example, Mm. and people, you know, that was a really highly respected place to make wine in the early early 20th century. And they were bringing in, people were making knockoff Chateauneuf de Pape, people were making Chateauneuf de Pape from... Algerian wines or they were being sold elsewhere or people just wanted people wanted a piece of Chateauneuf de Pape because it was prestigious and the people of Chateauneuf de Pape were like hang on a minute we ain't very happy about this because we this is our place so they started implementing laws and rules and string and they started putting um started putting saying you aren't allowed to make wine from this place or you're making too much crop from your grapes and this is your your wines are dilute so they started to make put law around you around their area and then they made their own laws and that sort of flowed on throughout France and said you know what this was the start of what's called the appellation system saying if you make wine from this place and you want to put the the label this on the label you have to stick to these rules. Yes, and I think that's something pretty familiar to drinkers of uh, Australian sparkling white these days uh, after some of the uh, the trade disputes that have followed through because of that appellation system. We're speaking with Rebecca Gibb, who's the author of Vintage Crime, A Short History of Wine Fraud. And Rebecca, there's just so many great yarns in your book. Um, what's your favourite varietal of wine fraud? Could you tell us one of your favourite stories? <laughs> Personally, I love the story uh, about the Jefferson bottles. Now, yes. a guy called, yeah, the Jefferson bottles. It's it's, you know, it's modern history, so it happens in the 1980s. And a, a gentleman who's later named the Indiana Jones of of wine for finding wine in all sorts of unusual places discovers supposedly discovers a stash of bottles that were purportedly belonging to Thomas Jefferson, who later became the third president of the USA. Um, They had these initials etched on them. And anyway, they were vouched to be, they were vouched as genuine by Christie's, the auction house, and they went on sale and and they went on sale um, in the 1980s and became the most expensive bottle of wine ever sold. At that time, it was £105,000 that wow. one single bottle went for. I know. <laughs> and it was and it was, it was bought by the media mogul um, uh, Malcolm Forbes, and it was, then, it was then flown to the US, and it was on, it was displayed on Fifth Avenue. Anyway, the story unfolds over the next two and a half, three decades, when 
questions start to be asked of these bottles and actually the, the authenticity of these bottles that he found uh, is is highly doubtful yes indeed. but it's quite it's it's quite a, a it's a long it's long drawn out and quite amusing story and but also very telling of what was going on in the wine trade at that time and um, and lots of people and law case cases of law and disputes. Yeah, it's worth reading. Absolutely, yeah. And I suppose that takes us from wine to to Coke, N- not the drink, but the brothers, the the Coke brothers, um, very well known billionaire funders of the Republican Party in America. But it's one of the lesser known Coke brothers who's got a central role in uncovering uh, the Thomas Jefferson wine fraud and, and others. Yeah, so he's a billionaire industrialist, and he was a winner of America's Cup which is, you know, a big... I used to live in New Zealand, so it was a big deal, the America's Cup. Yeah, we got into it in Australia when we started winning it. <laughs> it's always like that, isn't it? So, um, yeah, no, anyway, Bill, Bill Cope was one of these people who had bought some of these um, Jefferson bottles. He then went out to buy other bottles that turned out to be fraudulent. And while most people um, who have wealth, t- t- typically wealthy males who collect wine have don't really readily come forward to admit that they have been duped. It's not mm. something you most people want to put their hand up and say, do you know what, I've been scammed here. People don't want to go out in public. He was one of the rare ones who came out and said, I've been duped here and I'm going to go after these guys and money was no object. And he is really, he's blown the lid off it. And, uh, yeah, he certainly spent a lot of money on wine and a lot of money on litigation because of his um, uh, obsession with sort of proving whether or not it was genuine. But in the end, I think, Rebecca, he, he sort of now, uh, sort of his claim to fame is that he's got the fake Jefferson wine. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's actually, he, actually shows, he actually shows off his, his fakes these days. So, yes. And, and, um, he's got and, plenty enough in his cellar. Indeed, indeed. And that brings us to another uh, extraordinary character who you uh, run through in the book, um, who is a, a gentleman from Indonesia who was also a fairly um, uh, prolific wine fraud. Could you tell us about Rudy Kurniawan? Well, the actual, yeah, sure. The the real Rudy, Rudy Kurniawan is actually a really good badminton player in Indonesia. But um, that was this was not Rudy Kurniawan is not his real name yet. He so he was he ingratiated himself into the fine wine circles in in the US um, in the early in the noughties, and he had a great palate and he became well respected. Um, he was, went around flashing the cash, um, but slowly, gradually, he started, you know, filtering in fakes to the auction houses, and it, be- it became the subject of a huge FBI investigation. And eventually, his house was raided in California, um, and he was the first person to ever get done for get imprisoned for wine fraud in 2013, and and it was it showed that. If you're clever enough and you and you know how to do these things and you go to enough effort, you know you can pull the wall over lots of the experts' eyes because when it comes to authentic authentication um, in the past of wine, it has largely it has largely been relying on experts giving their opinion and and on. on a lot, a lot, and a lot of times, those experts have proved it's proved to be incorrect. Yes, well, I mean, you're you're an expert yourself, but there's certainly um, evidence that uh, ordinary people can be duped by wine and what they're told about it. But experts can too. 
Absolutely. You know, how I, I don't know what a 1928 Bordeaux tastes like. How do people, <laughs> how did, how did people know what the Jefferson, if the Jefferson bottle was genuine or not? They weren't, they never had a, a glass of Chateau Chem from 17, some 1780s. You know, we were like, like the wine industry has is response has been guilty of being far too chummy. A lot of the auctioneers, a lot of the fine wine traders, become friends with these collectors yes. and these connoisseurs. They go to dinner with them. They drink wine together. To some extent, there hasn't been enough checking in the past. But after the Rudy Kearney one case, it it turned out that. They realised they woke up, and there's been a lot more. Um, there's been a lot more action taken. Well, although is it sufficient? I don't know. <laughs> that's good to hear. Uh, it really is a fascinating uh, set of stories. Rebecca Gibb, thank you so much for joining us on RN. You're welcome. Thank you. That's Rebecca Gibb, Master of Wine and author of Vintage Crime, A Short History of Wine Fraud, and also the founder of Puzzle CRU, which is a wine and spirits-themed jigsaw company. We didn't even get to talking about that. 10% of the proceeds of Vintage Crime go to the UK charity focused on finding effective treatments for Duchenne muscular dystrophy as well. So just another reason to check out the Vintage Crime ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.